Well, how are you doing? Happy Easter weekend to you, wherever you are listening to this. Uh, maybe it's Monday, maybe it's Tuesday, maybe it's a year and a half from, from when I, we laid this down. I have no idea, but it is good to be with you. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Pastor Cole Hunter, and uh, to be honest with you, that is a phrase, that is a title that I am still struggling to get used to. Um, I think it's just unfamiliar to me because for the last 13 years, it was not Pastor Cole, but instead it was Officer Hunter. I had the opportunity to be a police officer uh, for the last 13 years, not only here uh, in Arizona with the uh, Tucson Police Department and the Miranda Police Department, but uh, I had the opportunity to be a law enforcement officer on the East Coast for an agency in North Carolina. And uh, whether it was here in Arizona on the West Coast or the East Coast, big agency, small agency, uh, there is one common denominator for every, every law enforcement agency I've ever been a part of or encountered. And that is uh, we have one job and, uh, and I got another one in here in the room with me, another former law enforcement officer. You can't see him, but, uh, but he's listening to this right now. He's making sure that everything works. And uh, he'll back me up. It's David Samarano with uh, LTD Media. They're the ones that are providing this great platform and opportunity uh, to be able to distribute content. And I know he would back me up on this, that our job, regardless of what we get called to anything for as law enforcement officers, our job, our number one job is to keep the peace. Someone called 911 because their peace was disrupted. Something either around them or within them is going wrong. And they picked up their cell phone and they dialed those digits, 911. And oftentimes it's when everyone else is running away from something that's making them uncomfortable. And law enforcement officers have the, uh, the great responsibility to run towards what's making people uncomfortable and robbing them of their peace. And uh, more times than not, it's fairly easy from a law enforcement standpoint, to respond to calls. We're taught, we're trained, we're encouraged to, number one, is assess the situation, take five, ten seconds before you just go running into it, evaluate everything, see what's going on. But that also helps get your heart rate down. Uh, we're taught these, this, this tactic called combat breathing, and the whole point of it is so that our blood pressure lowers, so that our heart rate slows down, so that we don't get tunnel vision. Because you've been there. You know what that feeling is like where you become eerily aware of where your heart is in your chest. Uh, it's, the, the thoughts are hard to compartmentalize. It's just like one after the other. And you find yourself in this spot where you can't make your brain work because your peace is disrupted. Who do you call? When your peace gets disrupted in your life, what do you turn to? Who do you call? You may not even call 911 when something goes wrong in your life. And if you don't call 911, believe it or not, you got something in common with Jesus. And what you have in common with Jesus is what the title of this Easter message is. If you're taking notes, and I certainly hope that you do, because you never know when something that God says through me is going to benefit you, it might be tomorrow, it might be two years from now, but always take notes. Leaders are learners, and uh, I believe everyone has leadership capabilities in them, so it's good to take notes. And if you're taking notes, go ahead and use the title for this message. Go ahead and utilize, Jesus doesn't call 911. Jesus doesn't call 911. And I'm going to show you why. I'm going to show you why out of the book of John, but before we do that, let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this great opportunity, number one. 
this opportunity to spread the gospel on every single Sunday, not just Easter Sunday. Um, We shouldn't treat Easter as a specific holiday or like a, a super important weekend at church because every single weekend at every church across the world is important. Every day is important. Every second is important. Every moment is ripe with opportunity if we're willing to invite you to the center of it. Not prioritize you, but invite you to the center. We, and we ask you when we invite you into the center of this podcast. Whoever's listening, help them to receive what it is that you have for them. Not what I have for them, but what you have for them. Please don't let me speak out of authority. Speak through me. Anywhere that I mess it up, please make up the difference. Again, Father, we thank you, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. I told you I was going to show you why Jesus doesn't call 911, and uh, I'm going to go to the book of John to show you that. But before I do that, i got to tell you how this sermon came about. Uh, This is my first podcast, but I've been putting sermons together for about a year and a half now over at uh, Vision Church. 7511 North Benet Drive here in Tucson, 9 and 11 on Sunday mornings up on the northwest side. Except we're doing it, we do it live and in person every single Sunday, um, but this is, the, this is the first time we've had a chance to do it in podcast form. And what's interesting about this, and I was like, God, really? Like, really, for this one, this, we're going to do it this way? The sermon prep, the sermon style, the way that the whole sermon came together, it was totally different. This did not, this whole week and a half, two weeks, did not feel like sermon prep to me. It really didn't. It felt, it felt more like a homicide investigation. I started, I had a text that I want, I didn't want to teach out of John 18, to be honest with you. I was going to go to Matthew 26. But as I started investigating Matthew 26, I started getting all kinds of information. And what was fascinating is the story that we're going to read from today, it's one of about 14 different stories that all of the Gospels, all four Gospel writers cover. A Gospel is an account of Jesus' life, and the Bible has four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as I started studying the differences and the similarities between the the various accounts, to me, I just, I had this reminiscence of, of my law enforcement career, and I felt like I had four different witnesses and I started, <laughs> well, first thing we do in a homicide invest, well, the first thing I should say we actually do, and David will laugh at this, is, uh, is, we, is we, we secure the scene. And uh, in law enforcement, we secure a big scene, a very big scene. And uh, there's two reasons we do that. Uh, number one is we have an idea of what we're looking for, but just in case there's additional things that we're looking for, we want to give ourselves uh, a big area. And so we will, we will oftentimes overcompensate and go, go very big. That's the, uh, the first reason we make a very big crime scene. Uh, the second reason, and love you media, but uh, is to keep you out. Uh, and and it's, just, it's, it's, it's a cop joke. Uh, we actually, most law enforcement agencies and, and, and media agencies, outlets, they, uh, they work very, very well together. Each have a different job to do. But sometimes we would joke with them and say, well, why would you take the whole street? It's like, so you couldn't talk to me. Uh, but a little cop humor in there. But regardless... The first thing that I did when diving into this Easter sermon was I had to secure the scene. I had to secure the scene. I I went back. I tried to put myself in the environment. I mean, we're talking about the last hours of Jesus's life, his earthly ministry, the beginning. I mean, the very the, the beginning of the end was the beginning of last week at Palm Sunday. But here we are at the end of Jesus's life. He's gonna die in a matter 
of, I mean, less than 24 hours, he will be dead. And so I treated this like a homicide investigation. And as I secured the scene, I had to know where was everybody? Where was Jesus? Where were the disciples? Where were my witnesses? Where was everybody? And so I separated my four witnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I started asking them, asking them questions individually. And all of them, all of them, as I read their different accounts in the gospel, all of them told me the exact same thing, that the entire evening began, and they used this phrase, it began when evening came. Write that down, when evening came. And I'm going to explain why that's important in a second. But when evening came, they all said that they were at a house inside the city of Jerusalem. But the reason I wanted to highlight when evening came is because they told time differently in the New Testament than we do today. Here in America, we, we, we usually tell time at night in, in, in sequence of hours. We, we, you know, we, we, when does a new day start? At 12.01 a.m., right? Or 12 a.m. That's when a new day starts. Okay, today's, today's you know, it's, if it's called Easter Sunday, it'll become Monday at midnight. That's how, we, that's how we tell time here. But back in the New Testament time, they would actually go sundown to sun up or sun up to sun down. They didn't tell time at night by hours the way that we do it. Instead, what they did was they divided the night up or the evening up into four different watches. Each watch was marked by a three-hour time period. And so when it says when evening came, that tells me that's 6 p.m. How do I know that? Because the first watch from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. was called evening. The second watch from 9 p.m. to midnight was called night. The third watch from midnight to 3 a.m., that's when the rooster crows. And the fourth watch from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., that was dawn. So that phrase, when evening came, tells me that this event began at the, at the latest 6 p.m. 6 p.m. Okay, that becomes helpful because that forms one half of my time window, but I need the other half, and we'll get there. But I've got the beginning part of my time window. When evening came at a house in Jerusalem. Okay, cool. Who was there? Well, all of the disciples tell me that Jesus and his 12 disciples were reclining at the table enjoying the Passover meal. All of them tell me two things. The first one is one of the disciples, Judas, leaves the house. Leaves the house. He's gone. All of them confirm that. The second thing that they tell me is that Jesus looks at Peter and he talks about how he's going to be handed over and he tells Peter he tells all the disciples, you're all going to fall away on account of me. But he looks at Peter because Peter says, no, I'm not going to do it. And he says, actually, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. We know that the beginning of the third watch is when the rooster crows, which starts at midnight. So now I have the other end of my time window. I have 6 p.m. this starts, midnight when this ends. So I have a six-hour time window. What happened in that six-hour time window? I got to figure that out. We already know Judas left. Well, the Gospels go on to give me more information because I continue to question all these witnesses. And as they continue on, they give me this information. All of them tell me that after dinner, the, the remaining disciples, so the 11, but Judas is MIA, but the remaining 11 and Jesus go 
outside of the city to this place called the Garden of Gethsemane. They go there. It's within walking distance of the city. And a very important event happens within the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples split up. Uh, if you look, and I, and I, I interviewed everybody, but Matthew and Mark tell me something specific about when they split up. Because Matthew tells me that they split up, but Mark tells me who went where. Remember, I got to figure out in this homicide investigation, where was everybody? And so as I talk to Matthew, and you can, you can see what he said. If you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 26, verse 36, it says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there. Sit here while I go over there. Okay, so now there's separation. But Mark tells me who was where. Because Mark says it this way. Mark chapter 14, verse 33 says he took Peter, James, and then that third person, John. One of the accounts, one of the witnesses. He took Peter, James, and John with him to the place he was going. Remember, the rest of the disciples had to stay here while Jesus was going there with Peter, James, and John. And he began to be deeply distressed. And so as I zoom out, Judas is MIA. The remaining disciples are staying here. And Jesus, Peter, James, and John are further into the garden. Now, why am I taking the time to highlight this. Why am I spending so much time unpacking this? Write this down. Proximity determines reliability. Every time I would investigate any type of a crime in law enforcement, as I was talking to witnesses, one of the universal questions that I would ask them is, where were you in relation to this event? I hear what you're telling me, but were you in a position to actually see this take place? And any time there was a witness who had close proximity to what happened that immediately elevated their testimony from middle of the pack to top of the list because they had the best vantage point. Our proximity determines our reliability. You could preach an entire sermon on that phrase right there. The closer we get to Jesus, the more reliable our testimony is about him. And John is right with Jesus. So I'm going to listen to him. I'm going to take, I got Matthew, I got Mark, I got Luke, and I got John. I'm going to take John's testimony, and I'm going to put it right here going, I'm coming back to this one. I'm going to hear what everybody else has to say, but I'm coming back to this. So we're going to take John, and we're going to put him right here. Let's see what Matthew, Mark, and Luke, let's see what they said about what happened in the garden at that time. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can look it up. If you want, if you could open your Bible, you've got Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, Luke chapter 22. If you look them all up, you're going to find that they all say roughly the same thing. I'm going to go ahead and read you Matthew's account because of the three, in my opinion, his was the most descriptive. And so Matthew frames up what happened in the garden this way. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 47, the second half of that verse, he says, Judas, remember the dude that was MIA, Judas, one of the 12, he arrived. He came back. With him was a large crowd armed. That's important. Okay, a large crowd, who cares? But when a large crowd comes and they're armed with swords and clubs, okay, as a police officer, my wheels start turning because when I'm determining a threat, I'm looking for does the person or the group, do they have the ability, do they have the opportunity, and do they have the intent? All three of those elements are satisfied. 
How do you know they have the intent? Because they're armed. How do you know they have the opportunity? Because they're close. How do you know they have the ability? There's more of them than me. That's a threat. So Matthew was highlighting that there is a threat coming to Jesus. But not only do they have the ability, they have the authority. Because who were they sent from? The chief priests and elders of the people. So they are coming with bad intentions and they have the authority. That is a scary situation that will rob you, rob me, rob everyone of their peace. Most people are calling 911 in that situation. But Matthew continues, verse 48. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And this is the weirdest thing. Because in our context today, we, we, we equate a kiss to, to romance. But that was not the case in the time of Jesus. It was actually a signal or a display or a symbol of honor, which the irony of this moment, he is, he is honoring Jesus outwardly with a gesture of honor, but inwardly he is betraying him simultaneously at the same time. And there are people in your life who will honor you publicly, but privately stab you in the back. They will honor you and absolutely try to affirm you, but behind closed doors, they will attack you. Always know that. One of the things I always pray all the time, Lord, please reveal to me who the Judas is in my life because I won't see it and you won't see it either. And if you're looking for something to pray, who's the Judas in my life? Verse 49, going at once Jesus, or going at once to Jesus, and that's interesting. Matthew's framing this up like Judas is the one that's advancing on Jesus. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward and they seized Jesus and arrested him. Okay, I hear that. I read that. And if you read Mark's account, if you read Luke's account, it's going to be very, very, very similar. But where did this all take place? Remember, you had the group here and then you had Jesus, Peter, James, and John. They went further away. So that's the account that they gave me, but they didn't have the vantage point, when this mob approached Jesus, these guys had some ground to cover. Matthew was one of the individuals that had ground to cover. So if I'm, as an investigating officer, as someone or as a pastor who's exegeting this text, my first question is, you weren't in position, I know all scripture is inspired by God, I know, I, I get that, I understand that, but it's also not word for word copies of one another. And so Matthew had a gap to close. And we have John's testimony over here, and the reason we've elevated John's testimony is because he's in proximity to Jesus. And here's the interesting thing. What I'm about to show you out of John is the reason Jesus doesn't call 911. What I'm about to show you out of John is the reason that whatever you run to to try to keep your peace, whether it is maybe not even a person, maybe it's a place, or maybe it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a posture, or maybe it's a, it's, a, it's a pastime. I don't know where it is that you go to escape from the world and try to ease your peace. But wherever it is or whomever it is you run to, I'm going to show you why you should run to Jesus. Because everything else we run to, myself included, does not have the power to sustain, does not have the peace to give that Jesus gives. Check this out. Check out John's account. John chapter 18. Verse 3. Remember, this dude is in proximity to Jesus. He sees it a little different. He gives me an element that the others don't. Because in verse 3, he says, So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers, 
and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing what was about to happen to him. What does that mean? Why did John take the time to point out that Jesus knew what was going to happen? Because Jesus is ahead of you. Jesus is before you. Yes, he was here in the beginning, and yes, he's beside you and he's within you, but you need to know that in your life, he's also before you. The situation that you're walking into, while it may be new to you, while it may be scary to you, Jesus has already been there, and he's in the midst of it. He knows what's going to happen, and he's there with you. It's why he's reliable. Nothing else can offer that. Jesus knows what will happen to you. Jesus knows what's going on, even when you don't, which is what makes him extremely reliable. It says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked, who is it you want? Wait a minute. He went out and asked? The other three made it sound like Judas was the initiator. But you're telling me that Jesus went out? You got a mob. We're talking 30 to 40 people with authority and ability, and they have weapons, and they are advancing. And Jesus, stoic Jesus, stands up and steps and advances on the crowd, and he initiates the question, who do you want? And what a savage. We paint Jesus as this weak, feeble, little, you know, security blanket. What are you talking about? Jesus is face to face going, who are you looking for? Unreal. I love Jesus. He is face to face. And why am I highlighting that he's face to face? Because we need the face of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the face of Jesus. And, he, and, and the crowd answers, verse 5. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. And he says this awesome phrase, I am he. I am he, said Jesus. Now, I'm not a Greek student. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't, I don't, I don't have a PhD in Greek and I don't, can't speak Greek, but man, I did everything in my power to become a Greek student in preparation for this sermon. And you can do the same thing. You can go to, I mean, there's plenty of websites that you can go to to learn and get this information. One of the places I go to is Bible Hub. If you go to Bible Hub, as you break down the original tr translate, or you, as you break down the different translations, you can actually get into the original text. You can actually break down the Greek. And when you do that, it'll give you a word-by-word -word breakdown of how the word is used, where it's used in other places in Scripture, and what the original language was. See, sometimes, you can understand, not every language has the same rules. And so different languages, because they have different rules— when it translates, it may not make sense. And so translators, what they will do is they might insert a word in order to make it make more sense to the reader given their language. Here's what's fascinating about this text. Here's what's fascinating about this verse. If you study the Greek, the phrase I am he, the word he is in brackets. What does that mean? That means Jesus didn't say he. Jesus said when they said, Jesus of Nazareth is who, you're, who we're looking for, Jesus replied, I am. I am. I am. If you remember way, way back in Exodus, when Moses was having a face-to-face -face conversation with God, and he was afraid of where, where she could go, does he have the authority to go in? And if somebody questions him, who should I say sent me? What's your name? What did God say? I am. Jesus let this mob know who they were messing with. I am. I am. He's not there. I am God. 
And they were about to find out firsthand that they were face-to-face. They were about to find out firsthand who was in control of this situation. And I love that what's in parentheses in in verse 5 because it says, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am, or I am he, Jesus said. And then in parentheses it says, and Judas the traitor, and it says these two words. I'm like, the Bible's hilarious. This amuses me. Jesus the traitor was standing. He was standing up. He was standing there with him. Now, why do I find that funny? Verse 6. And when Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, I had to know, how did they fall? Did they back up and just kind of bend down and get more in a concealment or cover position behind something? Did they fall down and worship him? I had to, or did they fall backwards and get knocked off their feet? I had to know. And so I started studying that word. I started looking into exactly how it was used in scripture, where it was used. And the word that's used there for fell, they're all used in Revelation. All of them. It's five different times in Revelation. It's all indicating like, like, like a supernatural fall. Simple translation. They were standing, then they weren't. They were on their feet, and before they could blink their eyes, they were on their backside. Like almost like power came out from Jesus. He was standing there, and then he, they weren't. They fell to the ground. And while they're picking themselves up off the ground, verse 7 says, again, he asked them, who is it you want? I, I think that is savage. I'm, I'm reading way too far into the text at this point. But the way I have it in my mind is, I mean, it's, 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 it's like the ultimate savage move. If, if, move. if you ever played football and you ever knock someone down, blindside block and someone's, you know, crack block and you knock them over, it's almost like standing over them going, you going to get up? You want some more of that? That's how I picture this. I'm not saying that Jesus is saying that, but the fact that while they're picking themselves up, he again asked them, who is it you want? And they're like, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I'm he. And if you're looking for me, and this is when I picture all the disciples kind of coming to the phrase, and all of them are there at this point because they hear this commotion on. I mean, 30 men, 40 men got knocked to the ground. They're having, I can't imagine they're having a very nice dialogue. It's probably elevated. It's probably loud. Everybody comes running. It's night, so sound travels more at night. Everybody comes running, and Jesus says, let them go. Some people may be getting up or mad. Some people getting up may be angry. It's elevating. It's about to go down, and Jesus says, let him go. Why do you say let him go? He says in verse 9, I don't have it in my notes. Like I said, I'm always studying scripture. I'm always studying the sermon. I'm always, I never ever want to have it just a memorized sermon. I always want to give the Holy Spirit room to speak. And he tells us why. Verse 9, if you continue on in in, uh, John chapter 18, verse 9, it says, This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. And the words he spoke were, I have not lost one of those you have given me. Now, where did he say that? That's a direct quote from something he said earlier in scripture. If you go back to the Uh, John chapter 6, if you look in verse 38, it says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall not lose, or that's not, sorry, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. God's will is not to burden you. Jesus is not here to do what he wants to do. If you actually look at some of the other accounts, before this display of power, Jesus, the humanness of him comes out. 
he's praying three different times. If there's another way to do this, I would much rather do it that way. But he says, not my will, your will. Jesus isn't here to burden you. He's not here to boss you around. He's here to bless you. He's here to redeem you He's because he cares about you. He loves you. He cares more about your will than his will. His will is to keep you with him. We were with our humankind and God. We were, we were together and sin separated it. And Jesus came to put it back together and his will is to keep you. His will is to keep me with him. Verse 40, if it continues on, it says, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son, everyone who looks to Jesus and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. That's why Jesus surrendered. Make no mistake about it. Jesus Christ was not led to the cross by a crooked Roman government or by a crooked government. Whether it's a crooked Roman government, whether it's crooked religious men or whether it's just an angry mob. Jesus was not led to the cross. He laid down on it. In that six hour time frame, Jesus wasn't captured. He chose, he chose to lay down on that cross. Why would Jesus choose to lay down on the cross? Well, the original text I was going to teach from was Matthew chapter 26, verse 53. In that text, he's actually scolding Peter because as it's about to go down, Peter draws a sword and goes after one of the guys from the mob. His name is Malchus, and he actually cuts off his ear. Some people say, oh, did he do it intentionally? He's not that good with a sword. He's a fisherman. It was a haymaker, and he got the ear. I think he was going for the head, but he got the ear. And Jesus says, enough of this, puts the dude's ear back on. And then he scolds Peter and he says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. You think I need you to defend me? And he says this phrase, if I wanted to, I could call down more than 12 legions of angels. Why did Jesus say more than? That's weird to me. Why did he even say 12? He could have said one and made the point. How much is a legion of angels? It's 6,000. He's saying, I could call down more than 72,000 different angels to protect me. I don't need you to protect me. I don't need you to fight for me. I don't need you to fight my battles. I need you to be with me. Jesus didn't lay down on it. Or Jesus did, wasn't led to the cross. He laid down on it. But the question I have this Easter and the question that you should be asking as we're wrapping this up. Jesus had the choice between thousands of angels protect himself or preserve thousands of generations by not giving into what he wanted to do but obeying the will of his father and he chose thousands of generations he chose me and he chose you why because Jesus Christ loves you he loves me he loves your children he loves your family he wants to give you peace. Not, and as he says in, in, in John chapter 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you. I'm going back to heaven. I'm not here to, to, to do my will. I'm going back to heaven. He was, he, he, was, he was arrested. He died. He was resurrected. And the reason that he left and went back to heaven is he wanted peace to come. He wanted, he wanted, he wanted prosperity to come to your life. He wanted a chance to, to be reconciled with the Father to come to your life. And he says in verse 27 of, of chapter 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. You heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. One day he's coming back. And if you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father. 
for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens. And we're reading this now before Jesus comes back ultimately. Why? So that when it does happen, they, you, and I, all of us, will believe. And if you believe, if you believe in your heart, and you confess with your lips that Jesus Christ, that you believe that Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man, that he is not only Savior, but he is Lord. He is the one that put it back together, that without Jesus, we have nothing. We have all these things that separate. You go to this church or that church, who cares? Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he is the mediator between God and man? Do you believe that he is the only thing that gives us the chance to be reconciled to God? Do you believe that? Because if you believe that, the Bible says over and over and over and over and over and over and over again that you will be saved in that moment. In that moment. It's the ultimate blessing that anyone could receive any weekend, any time, but specifically, specifically in this moment and this is the first time if you stumbled on this, if you don't even know why you stumbled on this or if somebody shared this to you, you don't know how you're here, but you're listening to it and you're going, yes, I believe. I believe in Jesus. He is my mediator. He is my Lord and Savior. What do I do? Let me pray, let me, let me pray a blessing over you. The Bible says if we believe in our heart and confess with our lips that we will be saved. Let me pray this over you. Go ahead and bow your head, close your eyes, repeat after me. Say, Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior and I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. I believe that he died and was buried and he rose again that I may have life. And I receive this new life. This moment right now is my new beginning. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope this message was helpful to you. I hope that the Lord spoke to you. If he did, please reach out to us. You can do so by going to thevisionchurch.com. You can also come and visit us over at uh, Vision Church, 7511 North Benet Drive, or you can scan this QR code. It'll take you right to a link that goes right to my phone or the phone, one of the phone of our staff members. We would love to, to get in touch with you. What are we going to do? I don't know. There's no cookie cutter program that we keep trying to design. Take this four-week class. Okay, we're human beings. Every single human being is different. We have to start a conversation. And that's what we want to do. We want to start a conversation. We want to pray with you. We want to come alongside of you. And whatever your next step is, we want to take it together. So as always, thank you so much for listening. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you next time. Love y'all.